linked to the potential growth of EPS. And currently, the risk-free rate, if you caused by inflation concerns, the 10-year U.S. Treasury already jumped to 1.6%. So that's really push up the uh, risk-free rate and reduce the risk appetite mm-hmm. because of the inflation concerns. And the numerator also jump needs to be more justified. So, it, so it's a double killing, I would say, <laughs> for this uh, tech stock and that, uh, some uh, uh, popular uh, equities uh, because the denominator and the numerator kills on both sides uh, mm. because of the EPS growth sustain- sustainability and also the reduction of uh, risk appetite and inflation concerns. Mm. Yanan, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much. That's Yanan Wu, who's chairman of Zheng Rongbao. You. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Over in the markets this morning in Australia, the SX200 is now down 0.1%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 up about two-thirds of a percent. Uh, the Cosby in South Korea down slightly, about 0.2%. And looks like the Hang Seng is going to open just slightly firmer later on this morning when trading gets going. In the commodities markets, gold is at $1,732 an ounce. Uh, Brent crude oil a little bit firmer, $64.85 a barrel. Thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned to Back Chats coming up in just a moment with Hugh Chiverton and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast, sunny periods, hot during the day. Maximum temperature is going to be about 29 degrees. The outlook, persistently hot with sunny periods this week. There will be one or two rain showers midweek and it's 25 degrees already right now. 85% relative humidity. It's coming up to 8.32. Here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the organization's human rights commissioner is in serious negotiations with China about allowing officials to visit Xinjiang. UN monitors aim to investigate allegations of Muslim persecution in the region where Western nations claim Beijing is engaged in a genocidal campaign against the Uyghur population. In an interview with the Canadian television network CBC, Mr Guterres said he hoped Beijing would soon agree to allow Michelle Bachelet, the rights commissioner, an unrestricted visit to China. We have always reaffirmed the, the absolute need of human rights to be respected and the different communities that exist in China to see not only their identity respected, but for them to feel that they are part of the nation of a whole without discrimination. And we have asked for the Human Rights High Commissioner to be able to have a visit in China without any limitations in the excess. This is being negotiated at the present moment. Some 24 million people in and around the Philippines' capital, Manila, are back under lockdown, with movement restricted for one week due to a surge in coronavirus cases. The area endured one of the world's strictest lockdowns from March to August last year. RTHK's Manila correspondent Alan Robles says the country has around 721,000 cases and 13,000 deaths, with daily infections averaging 9,000 recently. He says people are confused by the mixed messages given by authorities. By and large, the public have followed everything government has told them. In fact, it was the government that a few weeks ago wanted to open up the really totaled and crashed economy by encouraging people to go out. And they were saying, let's have tourism again. And they were actually ordering theaters in Metro Manila to open. And it was the mayors who had to resist this and stop it. And the reward that people get for following government is that they get blamed for everything. 
Another tugboat has arrived to help the growing efforts to refloat the giant container ship which has been blocking the Suez Canal since Tuesday. There are now around a dozen tugs trying to dislodge the Ever Given, which has stopped all shipping along one of the world's most important trade routes. Here's the BBC's Sally Nabil. Days are passing and traffic in the canal is at a standstill. The congestion is getting worse. Tugboats are operating on site and large amounts of sand have been dredged to make room for the ever given to move. But the changes of tide and the rocky soil are hampering these efforts. The authorities say there is good news as water has started running under the giant ship. But hundreds of vessels are stranded here, causing huge traffic jams. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton, your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Today we're talking about boycott sanctions and being stuck in the Suez. A pro-Beijing group in Hong Kong yesterday staged a protest outside a Chim Sa Choi branch of H&M. One of the companies facing a backlash in China, principally for the stand they've taken against the alleged use of forced labour to produce cotton in Xinjiang. This followed announcements made by a number of Hong Kong celebrities and politicians who says they're cutting ties with several international labels that have voiced concern about reports of forced labour in Xinjiang cotton. How is the boycott going? Will Nike, Adidas and the other retailers stick with the Better Cotton Initiative. We're going to be talking about that and we want to hear from you. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk. Or you can call us and our number is 233-88266. That's 233-88266. Uh, uh, as I say, after 9.15, we're going to be talking to uh, uh, Tim Huxley from uh, Mandarin Shipping about what's exactly going on in the Suez Canal, whether things are moving um, or not. John Joining us for our first topic, we have with us now Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum of IMA Asia. Zun Ahmed Khan is a journalist and research fellow at the Belt and Road Strategy Institute at Tsinghua University. And Daniel Flitton, Managing Editor of the Lowy Institute's International Magazine. We're also going to be joined by Andrew Lung after nine o'clock. Once again, our email address is backchat.rthk.hk. Mark Michelson, let's start with you because you're nearest to hand. Um, thanks for joining us once again. You've seen a lot of these kind of flare-ups and flare-downs over the years. Um, what, what do you make of uh, this particular one? Well, and, and with mixed results, but this one's pretty serious because it's linked to a push toward what's, what's been called values-based diplomacy, led by the U.S. and trying to form a coalition with, Europe, with Europeans uh, and with with uh, some in Asia, focusing on these issues, and you know that puts pressure on the companies that are uh, that are part of this. So that's one of the reasons they issued statements. Now these statements were a year ago, but they can have an impact, especially if the bus- if their business in China and of course their supply chains are really important to them, and in some cases they are. So the question is, how long will this last? Is it is it easing up as as some stories have suggested, and maybe it will over time. I think everybody's going to keep quiet for a while, but that may not be enough because pressure may grow 
from their own governments as well as well as from others, and then you get in a tit for tat situation. There's, there's a story in the South Town Morning Post that the the boycott the boycott in the mainland against Nike and Adidas appears to be losing steam. In general, do these do these sorts of boycotts, these consumer boycotts, do they have power? Do they last? Are there people who've who've left the China market completely or changed their changed their mind on issues because of these consumer boycotts? Usually, they ease off. But you know, think of Lotte, the Korean. Korean consumer, they really, I think they've removed most of their stores in China uh-huh. over a dispute over, you know, a few years ago between, between uh, a year or two ago between, uh, between China and Korea. So it can have, but for the most part, it doesn't as time goes on. And usually it's because they try to, uh, the companies and everyone else tries to keep a low profile if that works until, until it, it, it boils over but at the same time in this situation it depends on u.s china relations and u.s europe and china european relations and if that starts to heat up again then you get caught in the middle does it also depend mark on the attitude of the government in the mainland it it does in part it does in part and i i think you know even i expect the mainland government is caught because they want international investment in china especially in areas that are important to them you might argue that maybe uh, maybe consumer products are not the most important part of that, but still they want that. But certainly for their national reputation and to show that that China is operating not not only as normal but better than most places in the world because of their handling of COVID and and other situations. And this is one demonstration of that. And at the same time, all these company, many of these companies, have enormous uh, investment in China both physical and in terms of their business. And so it's it's very important for them, and all these surveys that the various chambers have taken sort of underline that. Mm. Who are the big competitors to China in terms of cotton? Uh, well, there's, I'm not an expert in cotton, but I, but you know there are other uh, other uh, other suppliers, India, for example, and and there's some elsewhere elsewhere in the world. So it's not it's not cotton itself, but at the same time, because you can always you can find alternative sources. It's not quite that limited, but at the same time, it's valuable and it's valuable as an advertiser. So you've seen. Some companies, some international companies, have have uh, praised, have have made it clear that they're accepting cotton from Xinjiang, and they've done their own internal investigations and found that there weren't real problems. This might be one of the ways out, too. Okay, a couple of uh, uh, emails. First of all, one from Tom, uh, who says, during the Chinese Cultural Revolution, almost every product in society was labeled good or bad, similar to what we saw with the yellow economic circle in Hong Kong where one week a cake shop could be labelled five demands anti-revolutionary and the next week a train line or a fast food chain. So in 2021, companies like Nike and H&M getting dragged into politics and forced to take one side or the other sounds more like the cultural revolution than freedom and democracy to me. Looking at the United States internally, we've never seen companies having to take sides between Republican or Democratic parties, so it appears they manage to keep politics conveniently out of their own economy. International politics is for governments and not for fashion brands. That comes uh, from Tom. Uh, And Alan says, China has been manufacturing trade disputes with Australia and blocking billions of dollars of imports to punish it for taking a stance on human rights or the investigation of COVID. So if China wants to complain about pervasive boycotts, it could start there. The PRC's instinct is always to express offence, to attack the questioner, never to respond to the substance of the issue. This extends, of course, to how it deals with opposition in Hong Kong. That is from Alan. Uh, Zun Ahmed Khan, good morning to you. 
morning. Good morning. Many, many thanks for uh, joining us today. Um, this seems to, I mean, this is, uh, from the mainland's point of view, this is, this ha there haven't been statements from the from the government so much as a, a response on social media and and and, a, and a promises of a boycott and some, you know, celebrities going the way. What, what do you think is the stance of the authorities towards this issue? Firstly, I mean, I think I, uh, I was also thinking about the TAR issue, which happened in 2017 uh, as a response to South Korea and American diplomacy. At that time, we saw, obviously, the people had a very firm reaction against uh, the policies that were being pursued by the South Korean government. So, uh, firstly, we need to understand uh, why is the ground situation the way it is. For now, Chinese people have consistently, in, from their perspective, and I think to a large extent from uh, a global perspective, we see that Washington has been uh, looking for opportunities to target China. And Xinjiang seems to be one where they have, uh, to a great extent, fixated. Um, right after the CAI was finalized pretty much, uh, there, was, uh, there was an outcry from American organizations saying that why weren't uh, certain issues to do with China brought up? And uh, we see that as soon as the Biden administration, which has promised to pursue multilateralism, comes, uh, takes office, uh, that they have been, uh, now they're for forming a coalition of supposedly democratic and like-minded countries and allies uh, to target Beijing. So, first of all, I think we need to understand why people over here feel a certain way. Uh, they, do, uh, they do feel that this is, first of all, uh, Xinjiang is an internal issue. It's a complex region. It has been the victim of certain uh, unfortunate realities that not only Xinjiang, but other countries in the region have also faced. And China has come out stronger. Uh, China's policy has been shared uh, through the SEO, for example, that the RAS mechanism, where they're all trying to find better, less coercive ways to address terrorism, extremism, and uh, separatism. So there is a context to why Beijing, for instance, uh, is very firm on the matter that this is an internal matter, and it is... It's not like Xinjiang was uh, not faced with complexities that uh, the government did not need to react to. And uh, secondly, on the question of what is the government's position, I think they have always been very clear that they would like to cooperate. The fact that, for instance, even though within Europe, uh, within the European Union, there was always uh, a bit of a sentiment that uh, these issues need to be addressed. European organizations have time and again brought this up. But at the same time, simultaneously, the CAI was being negotiated. It took seven years, and uh, it, it's been a priority for China. So, And also, at the same time, we see that the conversation coming from Beijing, for instance, Wang Yi's press conference uh, a few weeks ago uh, during the two sessions, was also very clear that we want to continue cooperation with the U.S., with Europe, with all parts of the world, but also with uh, supposedly just allies of the U.S. There is no discrimination in that. So they do want in the long term to pursue a policy where they are cooperating. I think uh, that is the motive, that is the intention. But at the same time, when uh, supposedly, because uh, there is a motive from coming from uh, the countries that are targeting China right now, if they are going to fixate on issues uh, without having a conversation and, and supposedly try to form a coalition to target them, obviously the reaction is going to be, in kind from right. what we see right, how do you right think, now, my apologies. How, how, so, um, it, yes, please. How, so how do you think the Chinese government will react to the intervention by the United Nations now? 
with the Secretary-General asking for the Commissioner for Human Rights to be allowed to have a, a complete access to, to sort this out? What I would, I believe that China, for instance, um, I'll give a bit of uh, perspective. For many years now that the Xinjiang issue is being brought up, China has been taking diplomats and journalist delegations to the region to show them what exactly is happening, uh, what kind of centers, for instance, have been uh, also made to educate people, bring them back into uh, uh, developed skills for them. So I do think that China is definitely uh, it has the intention to cooperate with the UN for sure. Uh, it's an organization that China has worked very closely with for its own domestic uh, policies as well. For instance, uh, poverty eradication, uh, that has been uh, a mandate. They've worked very closely. The BRI is aligned with the Sustainable Development Goals. So the, U the UN and China can cooperate very well. I think the only problem right now that Beijing has is this sort of defamation that's going on. Uh, this uh, some sort of propaganda that is coming out, a lot of it not being substantiated with uh, sub substantial, with enough evidence. So uh, when the UN steps in, of course, I think in the long term, in the coming months, we can see that, yes, this is something that needs to be perhaps communicated in a better way. I'll also point out another thing. Um, we people, like normal people that are uh, voicing, uh, being polarized by what's being said currently from both sides, need to be open to uh, what the other side is saying as well. So, for instance, China has Chinese media organizations, think tanks, experts, have all been time and again expressing the ground realities of Xinjiang. Now, for people who are only exposed to certain perspectives, also need to be open to understanding their point of view. And this is something that perhaps we, as people on the global level, uh, we need to understand that instead of uh, falling for polarization, uh, for becoming radicalized on certain issues. We need to understand why a country is pursuing a certain policy and be open-minded enough to try and see what their experience is to pursue that policy. So um, it is a complex issue. I think, for instance, uh, coming from a country myself where uh, radicalization happened gradually over time and all of a sudden there was a point where we realized, you know, there could have been preemptive measures that we could have taken. That that, is, have that, is that, is that Pakistan? Yes. So, so, you're talking about Pakistan? Exactly, then? that's yeah. Pakistan. So Just for, yes, that is Pakistan. So we understand countries in the region, countries that have faced this issue, understand that there is no perfect solution. But what Beijing, what China has done, has been greatly a successful solution. I'll give another example. What... Uh, we need to understand, for instance, when this issue was taken in the UN, countries that were in support of China were largely Muslim countries, largely countries for whom obviously religion is, Islam is very important. So, so this claim that somehow uh, China is targeting a community and majority countries within that community do not really take that stance because perhaps they have faced certain issues as well. They realize that uh, solutions are not that straightforward. Uh, we are not talking about a region that did not suffer for a certain time and now has greatly recovered from it. So okay. there is a broader context that needs to be communicated in a far better way than it currently is, I believe. All right. Daniel Flitton is also with us, managing editor of the, Lowy, the Australian Lowy Institute's International Magazine. Mr. Flitton, good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Um, H&M and Adidas and Nike, they don't really want to be in the middle of this, do they? Do you think they're going to be trying to find ways to uh, gently remove themselves from this spat? Oh, undoubtedly in terms of, of uh, 
trying to manage the risks to their own brands and therefore to their own to their own bottom lines. But I, I think that the important thing to recognise in all of this is that a lot of these debates, although the characters in this particular instance are different, uh, a lot of these debates are very old and long-standing debates. These are themes that the world's been confronting in different contexts for, for decades now. And you know, again, with, with Nike as an example, for instance, if you go back to the 1990s, they were very heavily criticised for their uh, reliance on, on labour, uh, poorly paid labour, uh, poor, poor labour practices in countries like Vietnam and in Indonesia. What's different this time, of course, is that uh, that the Chinese market is so much larger than, than the Vietnamese market was or the Indonesian market was comparably at the time. So they're trying to manage both the, the ethics question and the profits question as much as the rest of the world or the world governments are trying to manage these debates about what counts as internal matters or what, what should be recognised as as a challenge that relates to universal human rights issues, and that's what the UN what about the, the effort- debates about China and the, and, and um, the United States yes. come into 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 it. So I think there's old tensions here around values, but there's new tensions at the moment, which are around China's rising power in the world and the the, the, the ever increasing rivalry between the United States. Some some and of these China some, and some of these brands have taken very strong action. To make sure that their raw materials are ethically sourced, um, presumably some of the uh, brands are now being front, put in the front line. Uh, uh, why, do, why are people not accepting their version that they've checked their supply lines? Well, I think part of this is also the the mobilisation that that uh, both activists as well as consumers themselves are able to take through the connections that are offered by social media these days. I mean, that's what's different to, to the kind of campaigns that's happened in the past. These things can become far more global and they can take off far more quickly. So I think the brands themselves recognise that there is a real danger that these things can become a firestorm, that they can get away from them very quickly and that that poses a risk not only for their, not only for their market uh, for their market in, in China in this case, but also back home in, uh, for, in countries like the United States or, or across Europe or in Australia or elsewhere. So those brands uh, will then also have their, their claims cross-checked across social media. And mm-hmm. We can have debates about the, 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 uh, the veracity of some of the information that will come out about, about, um, about what's been happening in Xinjiang. Uh, and elsewhere, but I mean, uh, if you look at the reportage that there's been, there's been um, lots of uh, documentation that's been leaked. There's been lots of uh, testimony that's been uh, provided by Liga, Liga, and some of its activists. But there's also been satellite imagery showing the growth of camps. And these are not these are not holiday resorts that are being built. And some of the China, uh, some of the explanations that have been offered by the, the Chinese government, the Chinese authorities. Uh, haven't haven't sounded credible either. So there is a, there is a challenge in all that, and then the, the restrictions that there are on on reporters being able to go into the area. Some of the officials uh, being able to visit, for instance, no Australian officials being able to go into Xinjiang now for five years. It was revealed last week uh, in order to be able to check against the, the, the claims from the Chinese authorities. So I think all of that builds. 
protect themselves. I, rem- I remember when I was growing up, um, our family, even though we're not very well off, we boycotted cheap South African goods because of apartheid. That was the sort of big, the first big boycott situation that I was familiar with because it was unquestionable that apartheid discriminated between uh, blacks and whites. Some of this doesn't sound quite so firm, that there are different versions about what's happening. And we heard Miss Khan just now say that all the countries in the region have uh, very sensitive to this radicalization issue. So they're watching what China does just to see if it works or not. So it doesn't seem to be so, quite so clear-cut. Uh, it, it, may, it may have been clear-cut in, in your family, um, but I think that there were debates at the time about the South African issues, and, and I think that that's going to be reflected again today. I think that this sort of... Whether or not boycotts take hold, uh, when they're consumer-led they're much more likely to have a, a, a bigger impact. If this is, the question will be fascinating, and you mentioned that South China Morning Post story mm-hmm. earlier about whether or not this boycott's running out of steam already. Uh, but the question here, which will be fascinating, is to what extent the Chinese state, even in this era of surveillance capitalism, where there's, there's the ability to effectively remove a lot of these products from online stores and that sort of thing, how, how effective will that be in terms of changing the consumer behaviour? Or will people in China or elsewhere put a value in the brands, which is, is very much what these manufacturers have been trying to instil for, for decades now? And will they see a value in that as a, as a, as a statement in of itself? And, 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 and in that sense, the boycott won't have an effect. So I, I don't know the answer to that yet, but these, this is one of the fascinating questions that we'll see unfold. Okay, some uh, more comments. S says, tell your guests that there are divisions within the Muslim countries, like Sunnis and Shias, and that's why some of them are united against the cause and not others. Um, uh, Matthew says, responding to Tom's comment, sounds like Tom was suggesting that it's the brand's fault for being sanctioned, boycotted by the CCP, because they articulated a position on Xinjiang. Presumably, following his own rock-solid logic, Tom would similarly hold Maxims, HSBC and others accountable for what happened to them after they made political statements in Hong Kong. One thing to keep in mind is that Nike et al. knew exactly what the CCP w- response would be before they made them. That makes them even more significant. Uh, that's uh, from Matthew. And uh, John says, uh, Mark, that's Mark Michelson, mentioned the president of the Lotte. Is it Lotte? Is that how you say it? Lotte. Lotte. Uh, the president, president of the Lotte boycott a few years ago, which resulted in Lotte closing up shop in China. But aren't these fundamentally different things? The current issue is with decisions made by companies themselves, for good reasons, to change their buying policies. The goal of the pressure is to change what those companies say and do. The Lotte Institute issue was uh, about a Chinese government engineered boycott because of a Korean government decision to install defence missiles. Lotte was just taken hostage by the Chinese government to try to pressure the Korean government. Not Brackets, not the last instance of Chinese hostage diplomacy. That is uh, from uh, John. What about the, you know, Lotte, or, or, or do you agree with uh, the Matthew that um, the companies knew what they were letting themselves in for when they uh, issued this, um, you know, uh, boycott their original boycott of um, Xinjiang cotton. Well, uh, to, su- to some extent, the lotte. I agree with the uh, lotte was different, but it wasn't different in the sense that they were 
they were restricted, you know, because of partly the government and partly others. And in that in that case, it it seemed to take taken hold to a greater extent. Yeah, I guess I guess they were aware of it, but you know, most of these statements were a long time ago, a year ago, or at least several months ago. And I think they, I think some of the companies might have thought, and I can't speak for them, that uh, these sort of kept them kept them going on both sides, and that you know they they could get past this and clearly they they couldn't in the end because uh, because they were raised whether by the government by social media or by something else i just want to also mention something that daniel flinton said to reinforce that about about uh, nike and it, exactly that's what happened to nike in many ways in terms of of labor issues and so on but china's just so much of a bigger market for them it was just reported that last quarter their sales in china were greater than the united states nike's so and almost a billion dollars, so that's uh, just in one quarter in three months. So it just underlines the the importance and of course the uh, lack of limited access to uh, online sales, which have become so much more important in China and of course uh, increased by the uh, by the COVID situation. Okay, well we're talking about the uh, the uh, the boycotts, the situation uh, in uh, the mainland. Uh, we want to hear from you as ever. You can email backchat at rthk.hk. You can comment on our Facebook page, of course. That's backchat on rthk radio three, uh, or you can call us. And our number is two three three eight eight two six six two three three eight eight two six six. We're going to be joined uh, in a few minutes' time, just after the news, by uh, Andrew Lung, former director general of social welfare and independent China strategist, and also talking later, as I say, in the program after nine fifteen about. Uh, the situation of the uh, the ship stuck in the Suez Canal. Tim Huxley will be joining us to uh, explain uh, what's going on there. As ever, we want to hear your thoughts, your your emails. We've got quite a few related to uh, COVID, some related to our discussion uh, last week. I think we'll hold those over for uh, a little while uh, so that we can uh, get to grips with our, our main theme today, talking about those uh, boycotts. Uh, once again, if you want to contribute, backchat.rthk.hk is the email address. The weather for today, sunny period forecast hot temperatures up to about 29 degrees today the outlook persistently hot with uh, sunny periods this week and there will be one or two showers in the middle of the week 25 degrees already relative humidity is at now at 83 percent saturday you're listening to the news on rthk Oh, welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Monday morning, first one of the week with Mike Rouse and Mithu Chiverton. We're talking about uh, the situation uh, in Xinjiang. We're just hearing interesting uh, uh, discussion there on the news about uh, the uh, UN Secretary General talking about investigations, further investigations into the situation uh, in Xinjiang. Uh, we're joined now by uh, Daniel Flitton, who's the managing editor of the Lowy Institute's International Magazine, uh, Zun Ahmed Khan, who's a journalist and research fellow at the Belt and Road Strategy Institute at Tsinghua University. Mark Michelson is here, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum of IMA Asia. And we're also joined now by Andrew Leung, who's an international and independent China strategist, former Director General of Social Welfare of the Hong Kong Government. You can email bankchat at rthk.hk to uh, join in or call us on 233-88266. Later, we're also going to be talking about the ship stuck across the Suez Canal with uh, a shipping expert. Once again, if you want to comment, uh, you can also call us. 233-88266 is the number. Uh, Ms. Khan, I, I think you wanted to to, uh, uh, to come back. I think on a on a comment, we did have somebody uh, talking about um, uh, different attitudes within uh, um, well within Muslim countries, the Sunnis and Shias, and uh, uh, and so on. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Exactly, 
Yeah, so basically uh, there was an email about this, mm. and uh, so I would like to respond to that, that interestingly, perhaps the biggest divide between within the Muslim countries is Iran and Saudi Arabia. But you see that both of these countries are backing uh, China when it comes to Xinjiang. And even countries, major Muslim countries, of course, like Pakistan, but uh, even, uh, say, Egypt and Turkey, they're not supporting uh, what's coming from uh, the Western side to uh, target China. Because I think, as you also mentioned, that the evidence it doesn't seem to be as convincing um, uh, like maybe it was in the case of South Africa. So um, this is something to note that it's interestingly one issue where uh, two countries that are usually opposed to each other uh, are standing on the same side, uh, namely Iran and Saudi Arabia. So um, I think I think that's something important to note. And one more one more thing I would like to uh, say that when you see the sentiment of people here in China in general, they say that of course nobody wants to boycott. We they they have a very positive affiliation with brands, with international brands, especially Nike is one of the most popular brands. But at the same time, they would say, well, you know what, they're made in China. We have the capability to make this on our own as well. So they, they seem to have a strong resolve that if these brands are going to discriminate, we can also um, reciprocate. We are able to produce high quality within the country. So I think both sides, especially the brands, maybe need to understand that definitely they were avoiding getting caught in this kind of a political situation. And if they do, uh, they could pay a heavy price simply because China is such an attractive and emerging market. Uh, if so they, if that, they, if they yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the obvious point is, you know, if the evidence is, is not there, then uh, why not allow everybody to come in and see that it's not there? Um, uh, you know, there's, do you think that um, the UN is going to be allowed unfettered access? Is it be able to come in and uh, just see exactly I what's do, going on? I do feel, I mean, I can't, I can't, I wish I had the expertise to be, to speak for for the government, but I do think that China is very firm in, as I mentioned, for years they have been taking delegations and people to uh, Xinjiang to see what's happening for themselves. There, there are quite well, don't take delegate, don't, no, it, no, 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 but don't take delegations and show them what's happening. Just let them come and have a look and see what's happening like they do in the rest of the world. You're allowed to go and go somewhere and, I think I, and see I for agree yourself. With that. I agree with that. Person. And I think that that is uh, something that should be uh, the case in the future, that, you know, why not? Let it, but, at the, you know, let's try to understand one thing. Um, in, if I compare the regions that were specifically a victim of certain issues, we don't just allow people to go in and, like, there, there are sensitivities in the area. The security situation is, at the end of the day, different from what you see in other major cities in other regions of China. So I do think that that should be the next step. Uh, there is uh, enough of a voice right but, now. But now you're giving it. the impression now that yeah. there is something going on. There is something, there is a military no, situation or there is some sort of security said, situation. No, of course the security is. Mm. This is the reality. This is not, this is not something that okay. people so, don't know that mm. there, were, there were security issues in Xinjiang. And because of that, now there is stabilization. But that doesn't mean that, uh, that for instance... We, they don't have higher, say, uh, more police, but, but, but it's gradually decreasing. So, uh, people do go to Xinjiang. A lot of people go independently and move around. And the people there, for instance, are very happy with how things have emerged in these past years. So I think well, no, it's some, no, 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 some, yeah. it's, uh, I don't know, yes, some, some say otherwise. Uh, uh, okay, we, we've got a caller on the line now. Uh, it's Tony. Tony, good yeah. morning. Yes, hi, good morning, Hugh. Um, 
Um, yeah, I think um, Ms. Khan has given a, a very sage uh, analysis, I think, of what's going on. I think um, our listeners should be reminded when the West, the US and its allies told us that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, um, everybody lapped it up and didn't ask for uh, any further evidence. Now, fortunately, I think we have uh, independent investigators and journalists. Um, so the group at the Grey Zone, uh, so Max Blumenthal, Aaron Mate and others have looked at the Xinjiang uh, allegations in great detail, and a lot of the evidence supposedly comes from a single report. Where do they? Where do they sorry, sorry, have uh, they been to Xinjiang? Have they been to look at the, what's happening? Well, uh, well, let me finish. Um, uh, they've analysed in great detail the main report that the West is using to um, say that there's this evidence, and it's a report by someone called Agent Jens, uh, who has used public available documents from China to try and argue that there's. That, that family planning programs are in fact uh, genocidal and you know total misuse of the facts. So I think there's actually very strong evidence that um, there is no evidence, um, or at least no evidence that has convincingly been reported. And, and what gets trotted out are, are basically things that have no real validity. So and again, in this report, they talk at length um, of how you know evidence is being used of uh, so-called defectors and and others that make absolutely no sense at all. So I think we've had many previous examples when we've been lied to by the West. People don't question it, and then that's used as a as a reason for war or a reason for uh, conflict. And so I think we have to be very very careful. Okay, well, of course, uh, what we happened, Tony? Follow, yeah, we don't we don't just follow the West narrative because we've been we've been fooled before and we should not be fooled again. Okay, I think Tony, that with yeah. with the with the weapons of mass destruction, of course, then when when people went to Iraq. They were unable to and, and went and looked on yeah, the ground. Uh, yeah. So after a million people had been killed, do you think that's acceptable? Yeah. I'm not talking about whether it's acceptable or not. I'm saying that when they when they looked on the ground, they were not able to find any evidence of the weapons yeah, of mass destruction. You know, sure. it, was, it was all, it was all exactly. a scam. It was a pretext for war. You well, know, then, so, you know, so if we don't if yeah. we don't wake up and we don't actually well, no, isn't that, this Western narrative, we, we get ourselves into big yeah. trouble. But, but then but then why can't why can't people go to yeah. Xinjiang and well, look for themselves? They've been going for a long time. Yeah. You know, so just because the West mm -hmm. tells you they don't go doesn't mean they don't go. I mean, you know, BBC reporters, others have been there. Um, you know, I would like yeah. to see the Americans uh, let a China delegation into the supermax prisons. You know, there'd be zero chance of that. So, you know, I think we have to look at it from both sides of the coin. Okay, Tony, many, many thanks for your call. Our number 233 yeah. yeah, go on. Can I, can I quickly just say, like, uh, yes, I... We all know that Xinjiang has experienced a phase of radicalization, and that has been something that is being targeted. And just like Tony mentioned, delegations are going there. We just have to be very careful about the kind of accusations that are being made. Nobody said that Xinjiang has not gone through a phase of, uh, of the same issues that countries in the region and many countries at large have faced. So there has been specific targeted action to address that. That said, um, the allegations that are being made do not have substantial evidence. We don't want another uh, intervention. We don't want uh, the same powers that perhaps have a geopolitical incentive to say what they're saying to dictate the narrative right now. It's not in anyone's interest. And yes, independent investigators, journalists, etc., have been going. So I think definitely that we should try to understand that this is not just there was an issue, as I earlier said in my previous first comments, that we are not we are not saying that nothing ever 
there wasn't any issue that was being targeted. And let's also look at, I would advise people who who, are, who don't understand that it's, it's not as if uh, Xinjiang hasn't experienced anything uh, different or challenging to look at the kind of coverage that's coming out of Chinese media outlets, at least, because this is the claim, the, the point that they're uh, making is that we have come a long way. Mm. And it is a process. Okay. All right. So, so uh, Andrew K. in an email says, at least China is doing something to contain Islamic terrorists in Xinjiang. These countries doing nothing, of course, will find reasons to be critical. Not many terror attacks in uh, Xinjiang. Uh, S. says Iran and Saudi Arabia have the vested interests of selling their oil. And uh, Matthew says, true patriots use fire to burn their non-patriotic items. Hong Kong pragmatic patriots use mothballs. No wonder Beijing doesn't trust them and will replace them with the Bohemia Party led by new Hong Kongers directly from the mainland. Uh, uh, Andrew Leung, back again in the second half of the programme, question mark. How about hearing from the patriots who led the protest in front of H&M yesterday? That's uh, from uh, Matthew. That's the cue for uh, Andrew Leung, uh, International Independent China Strategist, former Director General of Social Welfare. Good morning to you, Mr Leung. Good morning. Thanks for, for, for joining us uh, once again. Um, do you think this has got legs in, in Hong Kong? For Just from a Hong Kong point of view, uh, we've heard uh, Eason Chan and some politicians and this protest. Uh, you know, do you think this is going to get much steam in, in, in Hong Kong? Well, um, I don't think that the Xinjiang uh, issue is directly related to Hong Kong for that matter. But uh, there's one um, common ground is that the perception in Beijing is that this is um, a part of a plot uh, to unseat, um, um, to, to destabilize China or to disintegrate China. Um, you know, there is a, uh, uh, a, a homo, homophone uh, in Chinese. Um, separatism uh, or independence uh, is the same, pronounced the same as poison. So there are five poisons uh, that can poison China. Uh, one, is, of course, is Tibet, Xinjiang, um, and then you have Taiwan, you have Hong Kong, and possibly even Macau. Um, this would be used as a kind of uh, plot to destabilize China. Um, that's the perception in Beijing. But I think I'd like to add to the um, early discussion on what's actually happening. Um, well, obviously, at the end of the day, as with the accusation uh, on the pandemic, uh, eventually there is a United Nations um, a team investigating what's happening um, in spite of the rhetoric um, in the West, particularly in the United States, uh, that everything is about Wuhan and so on and so forth. But as far as the Xinjiang is concerned, let's not forget um, there's an early reference to it. Um, the, the, a very large part of the population have been radicalized um, and also... Uh, fed by the organization called the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement, the DTIM, uh, which, of course, has been uh, branded a terrorist organization by the United Nations um, and, and, ironically, also by the United States for eight years, since 2000. And since 2000, it was only delisted deliberately by the United States as recently as November, before all this kind of... Um, backlash against China about the allegations of genocide and so on and so forth. But if you look at the um, at China, and um, of course the Uyghurs is not just 
um, the only minority. There are 56 different ethnic groups in China. And then for many, many years, there's been affirmative action in favor of these minority groups. For example, uh, the Uyghurs were uh, allowed uh, more leeway uh, with, uh, under the so-called one-child policy. They're, they're going to have um, a small relaxation for the Uyghurs. There is also uh, affirmative action in favor of the minority groups uh, in access to universities. And you were talking about the mosque, the culture. Um, China has got 20 times more mosques um, and three times more mosques per Muslim than the United States. Um, and of course, as far as the language is concerned, you will look at the Renmin Bay. You have a Renmin Bay, you take a look, and the Uyghur language is printed on every bank note of the, of the Chinese uh, Renmin Bay. And of course, the, 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 the culture about the music and dance has been pushed by, the, uh, by Beijing for enlisted uh, under UNESCO as the in, um, intangible cultural heritage. So that's all about, you know, sort of genocide and, and, and cultural destruction and so on and so forth. So it, it's got to be looked in that context as well. Now, I, I understand, as as Andrew, I understand the context very well that Beijing sees this as a Western plot. Just one more example of, of a Western plot to unsettle uh, the country. And that's yeah. one point of view. Would it be in Beijing's interest to get these uh, United Nations people in uh, quickly and, and nail this? Well, as I said, as I said at the beginning, um, um, that there is also a, a negotiation going on between Beijing uh, and uh, the United Nations um, with a view to uh, a visit, as as what happened over the pandemic. Uh, but let's not forget that if we just let everyone coming loose, they're going to pick and choose. Uh, and, and also, let's not forget also that there is a, a, a lot of the people have been radicalized, and some of them are actually in camps. So you, you've got to get the balance right. And let's not forget that for the United States, it's not um, exactly blameless. Look at what's happening on Guantanamo Bay. Uh, would the uh, United States allow the United Nations to look at what's happening in Guantanamo Bay? So I think that this, this has got to be in, in put in the proper context. Now, as far as forced labor, accusation of forced labor is concerned, it's also ironic that the Better Cotton Institute based in Geneva, um, the Shanghai office has issued two repeated statements confirming that they have found nothing wrong uh, with the production of cotton in, in Xinjiang. And in fact, 40 to 80 percent of the production are um, in fact mechanized. So, um, is this an, an, another side of the story? Um, but I think that uh, Beijing is, is absolutely cannot be faulted for thinking this is part of the overall uh, plot to unseat China. Those, what's happening uh, along the Belt and Road? Uh, all the countries along the Belt and Road, all of a sudden, there's a rising kind of um, disorder, all at, or more, more or less at the same time, um, including Miami, for example. So I think that this, um, there's a great deal of mistrust um, and, and exemplified by this exchange in, in, in Alaska. Daniel Flitter, just to, to finish off, because we, we, we've got to talk about other, other issues, but you look at the evidence, and it's fairly slender. It seems to come down to a, a memo that was sent from one county saying that some, I think, 200,000 people were being deployed to, for, for, for cotton. This is some, some time ago. 
um, to have this uh, this whole international kind of uh, conflict, trade conflict, based on that seems a pretty kind of uh, insubstantial support. Isn't this, in essence, the United States using this as a stick to once again try and uh, beat China? Yeah, go on. Okay, some uh, emails to uh, finish off. Uh, Alan says, Your callers play the usual CCP card that all reports of human rights violations are conspiracy by evil Western countries to blah, blah, blah. China will not allow anyone to investigate these on the ground. This confirms to everyone that they are covering up. That's from uh, Alan. Uh, Matthew says, responding to Mike, Mike, it's never clear cut. The South African government most certainly had a counter-narrative to apartheid boycotts, which confused many. Even the Nazis convinced many that they were, being, they were benign and should be appeased, including the former King of England. Uh, John says, so please ask Andrew Lung to remove his blinkers for a moment and address the example Mike gave earlier about the apartheid regime in South Africa. Does Andrew think that consumer boycotts in the 80s designed to create pressure for an end to the brutal and repressive apartheid regime with its massive violations of human rights were wrong or does or should those boycotts have been abandoned because they were plots to destabilize the regime if he doesn't think those boycotts were wrong he should explain why he has one standard for china and one for other repressive uh, regimes that's from uh, john greg says uh, now backchat has the unreconstructed stalinists who follow the tv program russia today tormenting your listeners Ms. khan admitted that suppression of the uyghurs is at the root cause of the oppression of families in xinjiang kowtowing to state propaganda and whataboutery as your caller tony did is a disturbing and unseemly development 
Uh, and Matthew says, can caller Tony help Backchat organise for the Grey Zone or their founder, Max Blumenthal, to come on the programme and share the truth about Xinjiang? That would be fun, uh, says uh, Matthew. And on Facebook, TC says, during a recent Chinese Foreign Ministry press uh, briefing, spokesperson Hua Chunying held up a photo of African-Americans picking cotton to make a point that the southern United States used slave labour to harvest cotton. It turns out the photo was actually taken at a Texas prison in the 1960s. Uh, to, so to Huang Chenya, as well as to other commentators, it's OK to take shots at the imperfect record of the United States, but use facts to do it. That's from uh, TC. Many thanks to our guests this morning, to uh, Andrew Lung, who we heard there, international and independent China strategist, uh, to uh, Mark Michelson, thank you very much indeed, Mark, uh, chairman of the Asia CEO Forum of IMA Asia, Soon Ahmed Khan, a research fellow at the Belt and Road Strategy Institute at Tsinghua, and uh, Daniel Flitton, managing editor of the Lowy Institute's International Magazine. Thank you all very much indeed for joining us. Five minutes left to talk about the ship stuck in the Suez. Uh, efforts are continuing to uh, re to try and float the uh, Evergain that's uh, stranded there. Tim Huxley joins us now, Chief Executive of Mandarin Shipping Limited. Uh, Tim, good morning to you. Hello? Yep. Hello. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Uh, we hear sort of contrary accounts. Some people say oh, it's going to be stuck for weeks. Some people say, no, it's just about to to move. What's the latest, that, uh, as you understand it? How long is this going to be there? Well, it's still stuck there. Uh, okay. There was hope that uh, on the high tide over the weekend they would free it. But uh, it moved a little bit, but it's still stuck. And uh, I think the very fact that so many of the big shipping companies are now rerouting ships round uh, Africa uh, suggests that they are ready for a bit of a long delay. We've got over 300 ships now backed up uh, trying to get through the Suez Canal. Uh, so I think we are. A lot of planning is now being done on the contingency that this is going to take a bit longer than expected. Oh, good morning, Tim. Uh, if if from the southern end, so to speak, there's a lot of backing up. Presumably, the Mediterranean is also under pressure now. Uh, very much. Uh, I mean, you've got ships. Uh, there's a sort of midpoint in the canal called the Great Bitter Lake, which is a sort of where ships can make a pit stop and where they pass. That's pretty full of ships uh and of course in if you go back to the last big closure of the Suez canal uh there were about 16 ships stranded there for eight years uh we obviously that's not going to happen this time but then also back up in the mediterranean you've got a lot of ships waiting to get through but again some of them are turning around going back through the mediterranean then down through africa right. to come out to asia well i suppose then gibraltar becomes another pinch point then because the people coming out of europe or North Africa, are going to have to go past Gibraltar and people delivering to Southern Europe. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think that the logistical challenges for deliveries into the Mediterranean are really going to come through in the next few weeks. I mean, there's three million barrels of oil and oil products goes through the canal every day into Europe. Uh, and the Mediterranean market is very much served by ships coming through the canal. Uh, so... All of these ships, once they are actually all back on the road, then that's going to produce big logistical blocks at ports throughout Europe uh, as they all arrive. I mean, we've had chronic congestion problems, really, uh, over the last few months uh, in Europe and on the U.S. West Coast. Uh, because, and that was sort of COVID-related. I mean, the ports are not working at full capacity. Uh, their containers are in the wrong place. Trailers are in the wrong place. So we're, we're actually... This is another crisis thrown when 
the global supply chain is already stretched to the absolute maximum. What went wrong? Why did this happen? Uh, very good question, and uh, we don't know yet. And there's a lot of factors being uh, thrown about. Initially, it was, oh, it got blown uh, off because it's very high, this. I mean, it's, a, you know, it's almost 200 feet high, that container's uh, 400 metres long. Uh, that it was, uh, it was sailing up the canal in the middle of a sandstorm with gusts of 70 knots, and that it could get blown. It looks, other people are saying there might have been a mechanical problem, so we don't know, and that will all come out in the inquiry. And then what we've got to do is make sure, try and make sure this never happens again. Right. Well, at what point will the shipping companies start to pull ships already in the canal out to the south or out to the north? Uh, well, anything that can, uh, that was coming up uh, going northbound, uh, they will, it's, it's possible, they've pulled the pad, but it's pretty difficult to do a three-point turn uh, <laughs> yes. anywhere with these. Of course, there's a big traffic jam there. So what the inflection point, if you're coming from Asia to Europe, it's really once you get through the Singapore Straits is when you make the call of do I head towards Suez or do I go down to the Cape? Uh, and right now, uh, it looks like a lot of people, I mean, just looking at the shipping data coming in this morning, a lot of the big liner companies are already routing tonnage around right. the Cape. But presumably you could use tugboats to pull people backwards. Uh, you can do this. I mean, there's... There's 17 tugboats trying to push and pull the uh, the ever given off the uh, out of the sandbank at the moment. Uh, there's not a, a massive surplus of tugboats around. I mean, these ships here yeah, they can go backwards. They can they do have a big turning circle, and they, they they will be spread around. The traffic management there will be pretty good. Uh, but with every day, I mean, normally each day 50 ships would go through the canal. That's now been backed up, so there's over 300 ships waiting. Why is it so difficult to to move the to move the ship? Can't you just give it a nudge, push it back? Uh, when you've got something that weighs two hundred thousand tons, it requires quite a nudge, uh, and you've also got to be very careful. I mean, there's a suction of sand underneath. Uh, there's um, there's very real problem of you've got to make sure you don't damage the structure of the ship. The last thing you want now is something to start breaking up. Yeah, you don't want it to sink, do you? What, what about, can you take the containers off? But I guess that's... Well, that is probably going to be uh, the next done. move, that they will have to lift off. And there was talk this morning they might have to take off 25% uh, of the cargo. That's 5,000 containers. Now, the problem with that is you need a very big crane, which is not there. Uh, and uh, you need a crane that's really it's about 200 foot high to start lifting these containers off. And, you know, this is an area that's prone to high winds, so that is not an easy operation. Right. Uh, but the, they've got these world-renowned Dutch salvers on site, and um, really, if anybody can do it, it's going to be those guys. If this was a movie, they'd use helicopters. Could you do that? Could you take uh, You need a pretty heavy helicopter because these containers are pretty heavy, some of them. Right. And that would be an enormous undertaking. And, of course, if you, if you take containers off then you, you need a lot of little boats to take them somewhere else. Uh, well, you do. I mean, or you put them on the side and deal with it later. And that's going to mean a lot of very unhappy customers uh, with huge delays on getting their goods to market. What, what, is this affecting us in Hong Kong? Are we, are we starting to see things not being delivered? Uh, not as a direct result of the Suez closure. Mm. Uh, we're seeing some restrictions on imports of goods which is really down to the whole um, tight supply of both containers and container ships. So uh, if you are 
I mean, if you move to Hong Kong and you're waiting for your goods to arrive from Europe, that might be taking a bit longer. Uh, if you're in the mood for a bit of flat pack furniture assembly, uh, you might be struggling to get a delivery. Uh, but uh, we, we certainly haven't seen any major restrictions on uh, food, everyday essentials, etc., coming in as of yet. Uh, you, you, do you have any feeling how long this is going to last? It's very difficult to say because mm. um, it will all depend. I mean, you get the high tide, they're moving 20,000 tonnes of sand and silt a day, but today they were saying, well, now we're running into problems because it's very rocky sand underneath and these are suction dredges that are getting it out. So it's, I, th I think, you know, sort of worst-case scenario. I mean, certainly last week when I left the office on Friday, you're thinking, OK, God willing, this will all be sorted out by Sunday night. Uh, now you're sort of thinking well, this is going to take at least another week when you've got the tide and uh, when you've moved more of the sand and rocks underneath the ship and lifted, and possibly lifted some of the containers off. Mm. Okay, well, an email from James with the um, uh, subject line, Ship Happens. Uh, James says, uh, the latest sewers crisis makes one hanker for the days of the spice trade. Sturdy ships, full employment, the odd pirate, but a reliable trade supply chain without even maps. Trade disputes between European nations were resolved by royal marriages of convenience. Oh yes, the occasional plague. No comparison with today. How did globalisation go so very wrong? <laughs> says uh, James. And thank you very much indeed for that. Tim Huxley, many thanks for, for joining us. Chief Executive of uh, Mandarin Shipping Limited. Thank you very much indeed. Mike, thank you very much. People will be looking at that history book for that eight or nine years stuck in the canal. That was a bad year. <laughs> The uh, weather forecast, sunny periods, hot during the day, temperatures up to about 29 degrees today. Uh, persistently hot with uh, sunny periods this week and a couple of showers in the middle of the week. 25 degrees, latest readings, relative humidity is at 83%. The government is providing free COVID-19 vaccination for all residents. Priority groups include those who are highly susceptible to infection or have increased risk. You can book online. Vaccination is being offered at community vaccination centers in 18 districts, hospitals, and designated clinics in phases. Outreach service at care homes is also provided. Protect yourself and others. Get vaccinated. Book at covidvaccine.gov.hk. 9.34, the news now with Samantha Butler. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres says the organization's Human Rights Commissioner is in serious negotiations with China about allowing officials to visit Xinjiang. UN monitors aim to investigate allegations of Muslim persecution in the region, where Western nations claim Beijing is engaged in a genocidal campaign against the Uyghur population. Some 24 million people in and around the Philippines' capital, Manila, are back under lockdown with movement restricted for one week due to a surge in coronavirus cases. RTHK's Manila correspondent Alan Robles says people are confused by mixed messages from authorities, with the health minister at one point saying, Hong Kong, saying a Hong Kong variant.